Welcome to Innovation at the Edge, a podcast dedicated to bold ideas that will build a more sustainable and resilient world. We interview global thought leaders and discuss what's new in innovation and share insights for both entrepreneurs and corporations to build more agile and resilient businesses. Tomorrow's low carbon and all electric world will be created by both disruptive entrepreneurs and large corporations. And this podcast provides advice to both on how to scale their ideas. So what I observe when I interact with the younger generation is that they have become more cynical than my generation because they kind of <laughs> they, they kind of feel that it's going to get really worse. But what I like is at the same time, they are more activists, you know, like they are not just saying it so that they disengage. It's more like yeah. we're in trouble, but I still want to be part of the climate agenda. Hi everyone, I'm Emmanuel Lagarigue. I'm Chief Innovation Officer at Schneider Electric, and I'm very pleased today to welcome one of the climate champions. You ha may have heard about that uh, thing that called Race to Zero, promoted by the United Nations. And one of their thought leaders here is Monica Araya. Not only she's been promoting a lot the adoption of electric transportation in Costa Rica, the country where she was born, but also across the world and is now, as I said, one of the champions globally, all the United Nations uh, initiatives. She's also very popular on TED. She had two TED Talks with one million views each, which I really recommend you to, uh, to check. Monica, welcome. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Monica, let's start by you. You grew up in Costa Rica, which has always been a country thinking forward in terms of renewables, decarbonization of energy. You've been one of the champions there in terms of uh, electric transportation. Can you tell us a bit more about you and, and how you, you got there? Sure. I was born in, in this beautiful country, five million people. Very lucky because it's a country that made a lot of smart decisions before I was born. So I benefited from a lot of that bold thinking. And I'd like to think that when you grow up listening those stories, then you, you kind of internalize them and realize that it doesn't matter if you are born in a small country, you can think big. I find that one of the things that allowed us to, to make smart decisions was this notion that people matter, right? It's not just the economy or is, you know, this abstract notion of growth. I think if you look back, even if you look at environmental decisions like protecting forests or investing in clean energy, renewable energy, when I go back and read about those discussions, there was this very strong humanistic approach. And I do believe that if we want to make progress on climate, energy, transportation, we have to be very good at connecting that to people because that's how you, you build a better life, right? It's, it's not, you don't I don't promote renewable energy or clean mobility because of the technology itself. I actually believe that it's, it's just a better life, less noise, nicer cities, cleaner cities. So 
Would you say that with this COVID pandemic and, and the acceleration of the, the agenda of, for the decarbonization of our economies, which has clearly accelerated, would you say that there's a reason behind that we are, as a planet, as citizens, we are more conscious about what we do to ourselves and what we do to, to our environment and to the planet, and we just want a more human society? This is, would that be the conclusion for you? What's your take on 2020? Yeah. Well, I think 2020 has been the closest I've, I've been to a big tragedy. And at the same time, as you encounter this and you see a, a part of society coming together, taking science seriously and, and, and reflecting on many things that from the meaning of life to how am I going to survive next month? I lost my job. At the same time, you we all learned that there was a part of society that did not believe in the science and did not believe in, in the reality that we were living. And at the same time, you have this question of, about how do we come together, given that we're so divided. So, so these two things kept coming up in my interaction with COVID. The other thing is that, at least in my experience, it really reaffirmed not only the role of science, because we all need the vaccine, or it's you need scientists and you need them to get a solution. But at the same time, it was very powerful to see companies cooperating and and this idea that you can't really solve it just as a company or as a government was very powerful. For a certain portion of society, especially the younger people, I think they have come to a point where they seriously understand that if this is a problem, COVID is a problem, Climate change is going to be far worse. So what I observe when I interact with my, the younger generation is that they have become more cynical than my generation because they kind of <laughs> they, they kind of feel that it's going to get really worse. But what I like is at the same time, they are more activists, you know, like they are not just saying it so that they disengage. It's more like yeah. we're in trouble, but I still want to be part of the climate agenda. And I have found that, at least in Costa Rica, that generation has become very good at challenging the idea that it's going to be business as usual. At least my job is about connecting dots and making sure that at least on transportation, we don't go back to business as usual because it's just deadly. So talking about collaboration between institutions and companies and, and this activism of the younger and not so young generations, right? So tell us about your, your role. So uh, in the United Nations Climate Champions team, you are the, the lead in transportation. So what does that mean? What, what is that role about? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it's a very new role because, you know, I got started last year and right before COVID. So it was quite interesting because it has been literally virtual interaction with everyone. You have governments that come together, they have to negotiate, but because now we have the Paris Agreement on climate change, now the action is about execution of what countries say they are going to do. And it's also about improvement of the targets because what the targets say is not enough. And because there is a recognition, an increasing recognition that governments cannot do this alone, there is this notion that you have to activate non-state actors. It's a terrible way of framing society because it's like, 
you, you're framed by what you are not, right? Non-state actors. And that process created a, an ecosystem that basically says, let's, let's just do things together as platforms and initiatives. So this idea of the climate champions is in the context of, of those COPs so that by the time the COP comes, you have a lot of things happening. In my team, for example, we focus on transportation, shipping, and aviation. We don't have the mandate to go to Japan and tell the prime minister what to do, but we can engage with companies that are not going fast enough and say, what's your target for next year or for the next five years because we're moving into EVs and we don't see you going fast enough. So in essence, my role is about a stakeholder activation around EVs for lightweight passenger vehicles, for buses, for trucks. Well, 2020 was a year of opportunity because I think a lot of members and, and stakeholders in the automotive industry realized that the end of the internal combustion engine was imminent. Talking about that, Monica, so, so precisely the non-state actors and all the initiatives that you're leading with the EV100, of which Schneider Electric is part, right? So that's the commitment of electrifying 100% of at least road transportation in a short period. So have you seen more momentum being built up in, in 2020 around, uh, around those initiatives from non-state actors especially? Yes, the important part of, of that answer is that it's non-state actors realizing that the future is electric, at least in, in the case of, of cars, vans, many other segments like buses. Then there's an, another conversation happening around tracking. But at the same time, even though there is a market driver there that is very powerful, you also have in Europe in particular, the whole push that came from the Green Deal package. Who would have imagined a year ago that the German government would have a package that would, would give support to companies when it came to EVs, but not diesel cars or you know gasoline cars? That would have been unthinkable a year before. So I think there was that, that kind of impetus in Europe in particular, obviously the US is a very is a very distinct story. However, even though the US was not moving at the federal level, who would have imagined 12 months before that California would end up having a mandate to end yeah. the sales of ICE cars by 2035? That would have been unthinkable, but the trigger there was the fires. You know, there was such bad quality of air in California, there was such a moment where they said, let's just stop burning things. <laughs> no, let's just quit burning any, because we're burning everything. We're burning the forest. We are killing people with this air quality. And I work really closely with the UK government. And when I joined the team earlier this year, and I was supporting them because they were talking about having a target for the end of the sales of gasoline and diesel cars. And the number they had was 2040. That was earlier in 2020. By the time we finished 2020, they had a target that had been moved nearly 10 years. But to your point before, in Europe, it was amazing. I mean, uh, in 2019, 
only 3% of new vehicles in Europe were electric. By Q3 of 2020, in countries like Germany, the UK, France, as you said, 10%. That number had jumped to 10% of new cars were electric. Even in September, as of September, there were more sales of electric vehicles, including hybrids, than diesel cars, and which is a big deal in Europe because diesel had always been very present in Europe. So, so it's happening, right? So, so you it's guys happening. are moving uh, things. And, and the pandemic has helped also people shifting their habits. So when the UK advances their agenda, its agenda by 10 years, maybe it happens. The other thing that is interesting is that there is a renegotiation with with cars in general, right? I think cities have have asked very important questions. You know, what about the center of the city? How many cars do we want to have there? Why don't we have more bikes? Why don't we walk more? So it's a bigger package that that is really interesting. At the same time, you have. Uh, the story of, of Norway and my family through my husband is Norwegian. So I also live through them, the whole transformation that you have seen in Norway, which has become an iconic country because it's an oil economy. It's still yes. addicted to oil. It has a very difficult discussion ahead of themselves about the Arctic and how much drilling they want to do, which I hope they don't do. At the same time, because of the EVs, people who were not comfortable with the idea of giving up oil are now comfortable with it because through driving an electric car, they became aware that it doesn't make sense to keep drilling. So they have come to a point for the first time, no country has achieved this. For the first time in 2021, the percentage that was going to the, the EV segment is higher than the percentage going to diesel and gasoline. It's 54%. So it's been really interesting because it's easy to say, oh, it's because they have a lot of money and oil. But if you really read the small print, it's also about taxing SUVs. They have a green tax. Gasoline is really expensive. So when you as a consumer look at a car that has a certain price and a certain operation, you know, a total cost of operation that is higher than what you would do with electricity, why would you go to for the expensive version? So so it's been really interesting because it's this kind of combination of market forces, the Tesla phenomenon, the cultural fascination with Elon Musk and also some backlash, of course. But the point is, we're no longer in that world of the 90s where the electric cars were the ugly ducks that nobody liked, right? So yeah. it's been really interesting. Precisely. So if we we are looking at Schneider Electric very closely to that percentage of EV adoption across the world in many countries and, and what we see for continental Europe, for Western Europe, the largest economies in, in Europe, you see the pattern that we saw in Norway probably six or seven years ago, which is very encouraging. Now, uh, Norway made a conscious effort, right, with all the measures you mentioned. What should countries, what should companies do to make sure that everybody gets to where Norway is today as soon as possible and without having to wait until 2040? What's missing? Yeah, that's a, yeah, a fundamental question. And we should really have that conversation everywhere as a city as a company as a country you know it's a question that we can't postpone anymore 
one of the things we've done in the champions team is to actually look at each of these levers of change and say what needs to happen so that we accelerate the pace of the transformation because the transformation is happening but we need to make it happen much faster so for example when it comes to suppliers one of the things we're doing is to go after suppliers you know the manufacturers and say when are you gonna manufacture the last internal combustion engine because if we have to be net zero by 2050 we will have to stop producing these cars earlier given that they have a certain life right like you you have a car that will last for 15 years so at some point you're going to have to stop so what we are doing is you know we literally go after companies and if one tells us we're going to stop by 2040, 2039, then we go to another one and say, well, what about you? When, when are you going to make it public? So you have that from the supply side. From the demand side, you have a lot of work to do to create demand. For example, EV100, you know, the initiative with the climate group, I work very closely with them. I, I love EV100 and it's it brings a lot of joy because is a win-win, you know, you electrify, you save money. Yeah. The company like Schneider tells a really compelling story to their customers and you start creating this story of transformation. And you hear this from the companies is that for those who own fleets, the numbers are already pretty attractive with the current prices for these cars. What is lacking is obviously more variety because they need different segments to electrify. And, and of course, they, you, you, you guys are experts at this. We need to make sure that the infrastructure works. But at the same time, I know that there are a lot of myths because people forget they can charge at home. You know, they forget that you can charge while you sleep. It's not like you're going to be stuck with your car charging for, you know, for a long time. You can just plug it in and do something else. And then when it comes to consumers, that's the part that really, really captures my imagination. And I would love to hear what, what you think about that. I do think, for example, we need to challenge the ad machinery. I think this glorification of eyes with these big SUVs that are polluting and that are being thrown at, especially in the emerging markets. I think we, we have to start saying, do we really want to do this? How can we incentivize consumers to switch not just rationally, but also emotionally, because I think cars are a very emotional topic. <laughs> yes, yeah, I agree. And and, uh, and that was your point uh, before on Elon Musk, right? So as long as the electric vehicles were the weird car in the range that nobody really wanted, what that never took off, and then Elon Musk came and he, make it, he made it an aspirational product, others are following, right? So... I agree with you because yeah, car is uh, is a symbol of status, is a symbol of is is a very emotional product uh, when for consumers, and then you have the rational aspect, right? So for fleets, the total cost of ownership, all the companies have understood that it's much cheaper today to have your fleet of delivery or service uh, trucks or, or even the fleet for your salespeople being electric. So we see a lot of momentum being built up by companies who are want to electrify. The fleets, because they've taken that carbon pledge, that carbon abatement pledge, and they are all in front of their shareholders, their employees, and their customers committing to decarbonize their operations by 2030, by 2040, but more importantly, because they're saving money. So I think we are reaching that virtuous uh, circle where 
on a rational standpoint, it's cheaper to run your fleet on EVs than to continue with combustion engine. Yeah. I think the other element that is quite interesting is that you have also the reality of, of the U.S. lagging behind. I mean, California has done great things, but it is a fact that despite Tesla, the U.S. is lagging behind. I've been there yes. and you just don't see the the revolution happening, you know, the EV revolution happening to the extent that you see it in Europe or you yes. you just have to look at the numbers of China. So some informal way of saying it is that they are five years behind yeah. and now with biden you know the incoming president saying he will promote this it's just very interesting because even gm that had been supporting a very conservative position before already had this need to go out and say no we're going to go into evs and one of the things that is happening in the US is that those who are part of that supply chain are starting to say we need to catch up with Europe and China because we know that we are lagging behind. If you're lacking, it's not going to happen in every country. But in countries where you produce cars, it's also very important to link the future of the auto industry and the reinvention to this you know, reactivation of the economy because a lot of countries are are in trouble because of COVID. So it's not easy, but it's easier if you are able to say, okay, here's a way of creating jobs that are going to be part of a, an economy that has a, a longer future than A good example for this is to your point, so the adoption in Europe is accelerating and at an impressive uh, pace. And what you see is all the auto manufacturers in Europe saying, okay, we're going to manufacture cars in Europe. Those cars are going to be EVs because we are going to stop doing uh, combustion engine cars at some point very soon. But we need local production of, of batteries. Batteries, yes. Batteries are mostly imported from Asia. That's okay while it's a relatively small flow, but when EVs become mainstream, we need to produce the batteries locally in Europe mm -hmm. to make sure that we really decarbonize and we don't add the, the, the carbon footprint of a transportation from Asia and the cost. And what you see is the buildup of probably 30 to 50 uh, gigafactories in Europe, each one employing, creating 2,000 3,000 jobs, uh, those are the green jobs that we're all talking about, among others. We see those investments happening. We are participating as Schneider Electric in, in the, that value chain in helping some businesses coming off the ground. Now we are working on a project called Vercore in, in the south of Europe to make sure that the auto factories, when they start in the south of Europe, when they start producing EVs, they have the right mm -hmm. supply of, of batteries. And there will be many, many more across Europe. And that's going to create jobs. The U.S. is lagging behind, right? Only 2% of new cars in the U.S. are electric. And if you compare to where Europe is, it's really um, uh, behind. But the hope is, uh, to your point, with the new administration and with uh, the traditional flexibility and the openness to innovation that the U.S. economy has, mm -hmm. you could think that the U.S. should be able to catch up. And... One of the really magical things we have to make happen in, the, in a place like Costa Rica is that because there is so much ecotourism and you have literally Air France and KLM especially bringing all these people every week. Now with COVID, obviously it went down, but even with COVID, we still had 1 million visitors. And imagine if you have all that renewable electricity in a country of 5 million people and you say to the world look we cannot do much about your flying because it's gonna be carbon intensive but 
if you decide to do vacations in Costa Rica, please come. We need you. That vacation is going to be an electric experience. When you go from A to B, if you want to go to a volcano, if you want to go to the beach, if you want to do anything, you come to the airport, you rent a car, it's going to be electric. And of course, we're not there yet, but it got started. I learned very quickly that you had to create experiences. It's amazing, you know, when you take somebody to a volcano and the person sees the car charging as the car goes down, that person remembers that. I have spoken to a lot of bus drivers in Latin America. They never, ever forgot the first time they drove an electric bus. So those experiences, we need to be very good at telling that story and making sure that that we tell a story that people are fascinated by. So that it's not just the rational debate about, you know, cost of ownership and policy, you know, so that people are part of this. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely an emotional connection that you have to write, especially in transport for transportation. I mean, policies and rationality and, and total cost of ownership will just do a part of the transition. So this year, COP26 may be pretty impactful because we see the acceleration of the decarbonization agenda of many, many companies, many, many governments with, with China committing to decarbonize their economy by 2060, with the US coming back to the Paris Accords, with all those that movement from corporations all over the world that want to absolutely decarbonize their, their operations by 2030, by 2040. How do you foresee COP26? One very important point about COP is that for the whole you know history of, of negotiations that process has been led by governments and it's very new actually that non-state actors have such space because even you know six years ago or seven years ago having mayors or having ceos was a little bit like yeah well what matters is what governments say so so the point is that now that it is more balanced and, and with one action, we don't have just have negotiations because the Paris Agreement is there. So it's about execution. Right now, one of the most sensitive issues is that governments are going to have to be committing to new a new round of ambition. You know, So for example, what they committed to until Paris was insufficient. And the agreement is that every five years you improve what you have, you never go back. And for the first time, and this is really important, for the first time, transportation is a full-blown priority. So this had never happened before. And the good news is that in that context, something called the ZEF Transition Council has been created, Zero Emission Vehicle Transition Council, with the 15 countries that have the largest markets in terms of sales of cars. It's basically a way of saying, this transition is inevitable, but we have to make it go faster. And, and we can bet that this year, because at COP26, transportation will be a very, very big stream because everybody is understanding the impact uh, it has. And, and it's, that's possible. Again, we've seen major changes that we would not have dreamt of in, in 2020. It's good for the planet. It's good for the society. Uh, it's good for the economy. More and more companies are committing to this race to zero, to their science-based target, and to decarbonize their operations by, by yeah, latest 2050. And you're the lead among those climate champions for transportation. So we, you have a very, very big responsibility here, but I'm, I'm sure that with someone like come <laughs> to. But, you know, I, I actually find that for the first time, I was able to combine two very important topics in, in my brain and in my heart, you know, because... 
I care a lot about climate change and, and I was working a lot with climate projects and decarbonization plans. I, I helped with the decarbonization plan of Costa Rica. I like activation. I'd like to be an activist in, in the good sense of the world word. And then with this job, I get to be part of the climate world, but I get to be especially part of the EV world. So it's great. It's, it's really great to meet people working in companies doing specific things. And I think Schneider is has EV100, RE100, yes. several All of them. <laughs> initiatives, right? So, so it's good. All to of them. And, and we are among those companies which have advanced by 10 years their, their decarbonization agenda because we, we, we think it's possible. And especially transportation is going to be, I mean, it's, transportation is a large part of our carbon footprint. And the acceleration of electrification of transportation and all your action to lead us through this is really showing everyone that's possible. Good. Monica, thank you very much. So again, you're, I recommend everyone to check your, your TED Talks. More than 2 million people have done it already. So <laughs> that's, that's a sign of quality, probably. And you will learn a lot of, a lot of things there. Thank you very much for your action and, and for what thank you do you. To, to, to drive the planet towards a more decarbonized economy, a more sustainable, a more human society, and especially working on this one of the biggest levers these days, which is transportation. So we're all, all behind you, and, and <laughs> we really hope that uh, this year again will be a breakthrough year in the terms, in, in terms of uh, decarbonization of transportation. So good to have you, Monica. Thank you very much. for Thank your you so much. We need companies to, to show the way. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a good year despite all the challenges that we face yeah all we'll, the best we'll do our best thank you very much see you soon monica thank you, thank you. see you bye thanks for listening to innovation at the edge by schneider electric be sure to subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts or spotify so you'll never miss an episode if you like this episode we'd appreciate a rating on itunes for more information on the Innovation at the Edge program at Schneider Electric, go to se.com slash ventures or follow us on LinkedIn. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be undertaken as financial, economic, legal, business, tax, or investment advice. The information, statements, views, and opinions should not be construed as the provision of advice by Schneider Electric or as an offer to buy or sell any products or services or to make or consider an investment or course of action.